Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, in this uh, warm weather, uh, please, by the power of your Spirit, help me to speak uh, well, faithfully, clearly, uh, in a way that is true to your word. Uh, help those uh, listening uh, to be attentive. Uh, help them to be able to be switched on and, and concentrate despite the heat. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that uh, by your Spirit, your Spirit whose work it is to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, we pray that your Spirit would do its work of convicting us of our sin, uh, that we might know deeply and profoundly the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, so you've seen already the, the big question for today, are you a sinner or a saint? Uh, in asking that, I, I don't really mean uh, at the core of your identity, are you a sinner? Uh, because uh, for lots of you here, you're a Christian, right? So at the core of your identity, you're not a sinner, right? At the core of your identity, you are a dearly loved child of God. In Christ, you are a saint. You're clothed in his holiness. So when I ask, are you a sinner? I'm saying, spiritually speaking, how do you see yourself apart from Christ? How do you see yourself apart from Christ? Uh, do you see yourself as someone who is sinful, uh, who's impure, uh, who is spiritually sick? Or do you see yourself as a saint? Uh, once again, not that you've officially been canonized as a saint by the Catholic Church. I don't think there's anyone here in that category. Uh, but that spiritually speaking, apart from Christ, uh, you basically think of yourself as good and pure and spiritually you're fine. You're healthy. You've got it together. But uh, apart from Christ, how is it that you see yourself? Are you a sinner or a saint? I was thinking about this uh, during the week, and it uh, reminded me of this painting by Rembrandt. Uh, I should say I'm really not into art that much at all. Uh, I don't know much about art. We took the kids uh, to the National Gallery the other week. Uh, most of the art was much too sophisticated for me. Uh, it, I, I didn't really understand how it was art. Oh, we went into this one room, and basically they just manufactured thousands of, of sticky flowers and got you to stick them in different parts of the room. I was sort of like, well, that's nice, and the kids loved it. But is it, anyway, anyway, it didn't seem that artistic. But anyway, I don't know much about art. I don't really get it. I'm sure if I went with someone who was, I'd understand it. But this painting by Rembrandt uh, is one that I really love. Uh, can we, it's up there on the screen. Uh, you can see it there. Uh, I'm sorry, it's a, just a kind of digital uh, quality, so it's not overly good. Uh, it's called The Raising of the Cross. Obviously, it's a picture of Jesus being crucified. You can see there he's been nailed to the cross, uh, and now he's being lifted up. He's being raised up. If you look at the picture, as you might expect, one of the people lifting up Jesus is a soldier. Uh, but notice the man right at the center of the painting. Uh, the man, he's got both of his hands around the cross. He's doing most of the lifting to, to raise up Jesus' cross. Uh, you could say he is the one most responsible for crucifying Jesus. Uh, can you see this in here? Yeah, you can still see it there. Notice how Rembrandt's painted the light. Right, so the, the, the spotlight is directly on that man in the middle. He really doesn't want us to miss him. Who is that man? Well, if you look closely, he doesn't really look like he's from the first century, does he? He's, he's wearing a, a blue beret, something that a painter might wear. You see, it's Rembrandt. Rembrandt has painted himself into his own picture. Why did he do that? Why this picture? Because he wants us to know that, that he too is a sinner. That Christ was crucified just as much for his sins as for the sins of anyone else. 
that he, in a way, was personally responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. But he understood that apart from Christ, he was a sinner, not a saint. And Matthew does something similar to Rembrandt in today's passage. Oh, you might remember last week we saw uh, those three stories, three uh, displays of Jesus' power, uh, his power over creation with the storm, uh, his power over evil when he cast out some uh, demons, uh, and his power, over, uh, his power to forgive sins. Oh, there's three stories. Today Matthew's exploring that third story of Jesus' power over sins, uh, but this time he's writing himself into the story. He's painting himself into the picture. He's telling us how he came to be forgiven of his own sins and become a disciple of Jesus. Matthew understands that apart from Christ, he is a sinner, not a saint. So what about you? How do you see yourself? Are you a sinner or a saint? It might seem like a pretty crass question, uh, but it's actually very important to answer it accurately. Because what we're going to see as we unpack this passage uh, is that sinners welcome Jesus. People who understand that, that they're sinful welcome Jesus. They're welcomed by Jesus. And people who think of themselves as saints oppose Jesus. And they're opposed by Jesus. Have a look in verse 9, verses 9 and 10. Uh, there we see how sinners welcome Jesus, how Jesus welcomes them. In verse 9, Matthew says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Uh, if you've been with us through this series in, in Matthew chapters 8 to 10, uh, you might have picked up that one of the great themes in these chapters uh, is that people who are rejected by pretty much everyone else uh, in Christ are accepted by God. Remember back in chapter 8, we, we had the, the man with leprosy, the, a man the Jews considered to be unclean, to, to be avoided at all costs, and yet Jesus reaches out and touches the man. He embraces him. He accepts him. He includes him, right? rejected by others, yet accepted by God. Oh, there was that Roman centurion uh, whose uh, servant was dying. Once again, the Jews would have avoided him. He's an unclean Roman. Uh, yet Jesus heals his servant, and on top of that, he holds him up as a great example of faith, rejected by others, uh, but accepted by God. And Matthew's the same. Right? Matthew knows what it's like to be rejected, uh, even though Matthew's a Jew, uh, he was considered to be even worse than a Roman, than a man with leprosy. As we've just heard in the kids' talk, Matthew was a tax collector, the scum of the earth. He was hated. He was despised. Completely unacceptable. Uh, first, uh, because of political reasons. Right? The Jewish tax collectors had to collaborate with the Romans. They had to collect, tax, uh, to collect taxes to actually support the occupying Roman forces. Well, that didn't make them very popular. And if that wasn't enough, like all tax collectors, uh, Matthew collected more taxes than the Romans required. Right, so the Romans basically had three taxes that were mandatory. Uh, first, uh, um, uh, first, they had what was called the ground tax, right? From that stuff, uh, a tax on stuff that came from the ground. You know, not rocket science, but uh, they uh, people had to give back to the Romans 10% of their grain that they grew, and 20% of their fruit or grapes. Uh, then uh, there was a, not too bad, uh, 1% income tax. And finally, there was a poll tax. right? And this was a tax that particularly uh, irked the Jewish people. Uh, this tax went directly to funding the Roman army. And it was a tax that every Jew, uh, every Jewish man and woman over a certain age, they all had to pay it. 
And so what that said was that the Romans thought of themselves as not just owning the land, but the people themselves, you see. Every person belonged to them, so they had a right to tax every person. The, person. the Jews hated that. They thought the land and they uh, belonged to God. So tax, tax collectors like Matthew were hated, even just for collecting those three taxes. Uh, but then they'd collect a whole bunch of other taxes to make a profit. Uh, they put a tax on all goods, uh, a tax on using a particular road, uh, on passing over that bridge, on entering that city, on docking your boat in that harbour. Uh, they put a tax on, on different animals that were used to transport goods. They'd even put a tax on parts of the cart. Right? If, you, if your cart had four wheels or six wheels, there was extra tax. But they had all these extra taxes, and most of them were connected to the transporting of goods, which is why Matthew lives in Capernaum, you see, where this story takes place. Because Capernaum's a place where a bunch of major roads come together, uh, and you'll see here that Matthew can set up his booth right beside the road uh, and collect taxes to rip off his own people. Politically, Matthew uh, was a traitor. Uh, He was in bed with the enemy. He was unacceptable. He was also spiritually unacceptable. Uh, by that I mean he was considered to be unclean. He wasn't fit to be in the presence of a, of a holy and pure God. Uh, and this is from the fact that the uh, Jewish law in the first century had actually banned tax collectors from the synagogue, from the temple. Uh, they'd based that on a, on a law in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 5, uh, which required God's people uh, to avoid anyone who had contact, uh, oh, sorry, who was guilty of kind of prostituting themselves, is the word of the verse, uh, to the pagan god Moloch. Uh, Moloch, who uh, was uh, really keen on uh, child sacrifice. Uh, so the Jews weren't a big fan of him. Uh, so anyone uh, who had contact with uh, anyone who had contact with the pagan god Moloch uh, was to be avoided. They weren't allowed to go into the temple. Uh, so the Jews in the first century, uh, the Jewish leaders had applied that to tax collectors. They said Matthew was unclean. He had to be avoided uh, because he'd prostituted himself. He'd united himself way too intimately with the pagan empire of Rome. So he was spiritually unclean. Wasn't allowed in the temple. Being uh, politically and spiritually unclean, uh, tax collectors were also socially unclean. Jews weren't allowed to travel with a tax collector. Uh, They weren't allowed to do any business with a tax collector. Uh, They weren't allowed to uh, have a tax collector as a guest in their house. And they certainly weren't allowed to be a guest in a tax collector's house. That was a big no-no. Tax collectors were to be excluded and avoided and shunned. My point is Matthew knew what it was like to be rejected. He spent his whole life being rejected. His own people thought that politically, socially, spiritually, uh, he, was, he was completely unacceptable. So the wonder of this story is that even though Matthew was rejected by pretty much everyone else, in Christ he's accepted by God. Rejected by everyone else, but in Christ he's accepted by God. Jesus sees him by the road and says, follow me. I don't know if you know what it's like to be rejected. I suspect uh, plenty of people here do. Uh, To feel that deep sense that probably no one will ever accept me. Or at least not the people I really want. So if that's you, I want you to take heart from this story. To know uh, ultimately the person who really matters will accept you. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's an expert. His, his main game is to accept people who've been rejected by pretty much everyone else, who've only ever known rejection. Christ accepts them and calls them to follow him. That's what Matthew does. You see it here. He gets up and follows Jesus. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention it, but, but Luke says uh, that Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus. Right here, he leaves his position, his job, his income. Uh, he leaves his whole life behind to follow Jesus. Uh, that teaches us a whole lot about what it, what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, first, uh, Matthew actively gets up and follows Jesus. Right? Following Christ, uh, becoming a Christian, having faith in Christ is always active. You have to do something. Right? Some of you might remember that last week, I hope this is okay, is Di here? She ran. Anyway, uh, last week Di was up here with her camping chair. Right? She was talking uh, about faith. Right, so how would you know uh, if Di had faith in her camping chair? Uh, what? Sorry? Yeah. She'd sit, on. She'd sit on it. That's right. You know, it's not because she knows lots about the chair. Uh, she knows the brand. It's not because she can describe the chair really well, the whole colour scheme and the trimming. It looks magnificent. It's not because she's seen lots of other people sit in the chair. I'm pretty sure it's. I'm pretty sure it'll take the weight, but because I've seen lots of other people. No, she. Uh, you know, she's got faith in the chair when she actually sits in the chair herself. Her faith has to be expressed actively. That's what, it, that's what it's like in becoming a Christian. It's clear that Matthew gets it. He has faith in Jesus because he gets up and follows him. His faith is expressed actively. Second, I just said that in Luke chapter 5, Matthew's prepared to leave everything to follow Jesus. Uh, back in chapter 4, Matthew told us uh, how Peter, uh, Andrew, James and John, Jesus' first disciples, uh, he told us how they came to become his followers. Uh, Matthew's uh, clear that all these men were fishermen. And not only were they fishermen, uh, but their dads were fishermen. Uh, probably their dads' dads were fishermen. Or you get the idea, fishing was all they'd ever known. It was in their blood. And yet when Jesus calls them, they leave their nets immediately and follow him. But you see that? They left their nets. They left behind the only life they had ever known. Everything that they were, they left it behind and they followed Jesus just like Matthew. They understood that following Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. And they got that from Jesus. Right In Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, just the next chapter on, Jesus says, Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me, is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Uh, we sometimes today might uh, talk about, oh, that's a cross I've got to bear. You know, some Christians say that because uh, they've had a bad week or something. That's a cross I've got to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I mean, you might have a cross to bear this week. But if putting ourselves in the shoes of the people listening to Jesus, uh, they know that anyone who's picked up a cross uh, has done that because they've been sentenced to death. But their life is over. That's the only time someone picked up a cross. So Jesus is saying that if you want to follow him, if you want to be worthy of him, uh, you have to leave behind your old life. You have to die to your old life, the life that revolved around your desires and your dreams and, and your ambitions. Right? The person on death row has no dreams or, or plans or ambitions. 
Right? You leave that life behind, you, you kind of crucify that life, it's dead to you, and you live a new life for Christ. Peter, Andrew, James and John left their nets. They left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew leaves his booth, leaves everything to follow Jesus. And third, Matthew arranges for his friends to meet Jesus. Verse 10 uh, says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Uh, Interesting in this chapter, uh, if you look back in verse 2, it was the paralyzed man's friends who brought him to Jesus. And here, Matthew, in verse 10, is trying to do the same thing with his friends. He's trying to bring his friends to Jesus. He's arranged his dinner party uh, to try and introduce them to Jesus. This is just in passing, but but maybe you could do something similar. Uh, If it was me, I wouldn't do dinner unless someone else was cooking it. Uh, But uh, it doesn't have to be dinner. Uh, It could be coffee or or a beer or a sporting event or a play date at the park or a workshop of some kind. Anything that you can do uh, where your intention is to get Christians together with non-Christians and introduce people to Jesus. That's what Matthew's done. Maybe you could do something similar if you're a follower of Jesus. Right, the big idea in verses 9 and 10 is that people like Matthew, who, who know that they're sinners, uh, they, they know that apart from Christ, they're, they're sinful and impure and spiritually sick. Those kind of people welcome Jesus. They know they need him. And they're welcomed by Jesus. Uh, the rest of the passage shows us that people who consider themselves to be saints who think of themselves as being good and pure and spiritually healthy, those kind of people oppose Jesus. Not only do they not think they need Jesus, he's a nuisance to them. He's an annoyance to be gotten rid of. We saw that opposition begin back in verse 3. You remember the teachers of the law objected to Jesus' claim uh, that he had the power to forgive sins. They they didn't like that. They called him a blasphemer. Uh, But in verses 11 to 17, two more criticisms come up. Have a look at first in verse 11. Uh, the Pharisees criticise Jesus uh, because they don't think he's morally serious enough. Rather, they ask his disciples, well, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, they're, they're, what they're thinking is uh, that if Jesus is willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, uh, he must want to join them in their lifestyle. Right? That follows. He, he, he just wants to. Um, he's not uh, kind of serious uh, about living God's way. He's not really committed to do it. A little bit of sin here and there, no big deal. So Jesus responds with an illustration and a quotation. Right? The illustration's medical, it's pretty well known. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, uh, but the sick. Now, I didn't know this, uh, but uh, apparently, uh, oh, we know, sorry, uh, that if, uh, if I'm sick today, uh, I go to the doctor. I go to the the GP or or to the specialist consulting rooms. I go to the hospital. Uh, But if I'm sick, I go to the doctor. Uh, But in Jesus' day, they didn't have those kind of rooms. They didn't have hospitals or rooms or those kind of things. Uh, So uh, doctors went to the people, right? No sick people going to doctors, but doctors going to sick people. There's a bit of sense there, actually, because I'm the sick one, right? You're healthy. Why don't you come to me? But anyway, uh, in in Jesus' day, uh, that's what it was like. And so Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. But I'm a spiritual doctor. If I want to heal people, I've actually got to go where the people know that they're sick. I've got to go where the people want healing. But it's no good Jesus spending all his time with people like the Pharisees. People who think uh, that spiritually speaking they're A-OK, they're fine, that they're perfectly healthy. 
Uh, Jesus also challenges the Pharisees by quoting from Hosea. Uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, if you don't know the book of Hosea, uh, Hosea uh, is full uh, of him criticizing God's people, particularly that the leaders of God's people, uh, because uh, they're going through the motions of religion, often with immense sacrifice, uh, but as Hosea can tell that their heart's not in it. Uh, so in Hosea 6, verse 6, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of me rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, if you Pharisees right, really were uh, leaders of God's people, right, if you were so right with God as you claim to be, uh, you would have mercy on people like Matthew and his friends. That's what God wants in this situation. Mercy on people like Matthew and his friends. You'd reach out to them and you'd try and bring them back to God. Instead, you hate them, you despise them, you shun them. That's Jesus' rebuke of them by quoting from Hosea 6, verse 6. In verse 13, Jesus ends the conversation by saying, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners. Right? Jesus hasn't come to call people who are convinced that they're saints, people who are utterly convinced that they're good, that they're righteous, people like the Pharisees. He's come to call people who know that they're sinners, like Matthew and his friends. Right, that's the first criticism in Jesus' response. It's the Pharisees not thinking Jesus is morally serious. Uh, the second criticism in verse 14, uh, it comes from some of the disciples of John the Baptist. Right? And they don't think Jesus is serious enough about religion, uh, about particular rituals. Uh, so do these disciples say to Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, uh, but your disciples do not fast? Uh, you see the irony in the passage? Right at the same moment when Matthew and his friends are feasting, right, having a massive party, a great banquet, it's wonderful, they're feasting, and these disciples of John the Baptist are fasting. And they go, oh, like, what's going on here? You're fasting, we're, you're feasting, we're fasting. Why is that? And, and they don't really understand why Jesus doesn't take the ritual of fasting seriously. Why isn't he doing it? And his disciples. Uh, the, the rest of the passage, uh, Jesus gives three pictures to explain why. Uh, the first in verse 15, uh, he basically says, uh, my disciples aren't fasting uh, because they know that we're at a wedding, not a funeral. Right? It's a wedding, not a funeral. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus' disciples don't fast because they're happy, they're joyous, they're satisfied. And the reason they're satisfied, Jesus says, is him. They're satisfied because he's with them. Now, let's be honest. We might forgive that kind of attitude in a child. You know, a child bursts into the room, they kind of say, I'm here! And you're expected to be over the moon, joyous, happy, simply because they've graced you with their presence. Right? They're with you. Isn't it wonderful? Right? In a child, we tolerate that kind of egocentric, uh, self-absorbed attitude. But in an adult, it's not so appealing, is it? You should be full of joy simply because I'm here. You know? Yet that's what Jesus says. His disciples are feasting, they're, they're full of joy, they're happy, simply because he's with them. Whether that would be completely egocentric unless there's something very different about Jesus. 
Jesus hints at what uh, hints at what is different by calling himself the bridegroom. He calls himself the bridegroom and his disciples his bride. Uh, it's a metaphor. We don't have time to unpack too many passages, uh, really. Uh, but uh, it's a metaphor that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Oh, you might remember uh, that uh, God regularly expresses his love and commitment to his people uh, as being like that of a husband for his wife or, or a bridegroom for his bride. And between the time of the Old and the New Testament, uh, by Jesus' day, uh, the Jews had started to apply that kind of metaphor uh, to the Messiah, to the promised king, the, the one who was going to uh, establish and rule over God's kingdom. So what's Jesus doing? In in applying this to himself, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am God's promised king. So Jesus is saying, me being here is kind of a big deal. That's basically what he's saying. It marks the breaking in of God's kingdom. It's the beginning of a wedding, a celebration, not a funeral. It calls for feasting, not fasting. Uh, That idea of newness is carried on in the second picture. Uh, Jesus uh, talks about sewing in verse 16. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, uh, for the patch will pull away from the garment, uh, making the tear worse. I I know nothing about sewing, uh, but I'm told uh, that if you're going to kind of mend a coat by sticking a patch on it, uh, you have to make sure the patch has done all its shrinking before you sew it on. Otherwise, you sew it on, it shrinks, and then it kind of rips the hole and makes it even worse. I can understand it conceptually. I've got no idea how you do it, but that's Jesus' point. Right? The, the patch has to be compatible. In verse 17, Jesus uses the picture of wine and wineskins. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Uh, This is a little bit hard for us to understand, uh, but in Jesus' day, uh, they used to make uh, animal skin bottles. Right, so they kind of kill animals, skin it, uh, and then you know, do a bunch of cleaning and all that kind of jazz as they do. Uh, fur on the outside and, and put the wine on the inside. All right, but of course, uh, over time, you can imagine animal skin. Uh, over time, the skin becomes harder. Uh, it becomes more inflexible. Uh, it might even be brittle. Uh, so yeah, so uh, if you put uh, new wine into one of these hard, inflexible, brittle animal skins uh, and the gases are still fermenting, oh, well, lo and behold, the skin bursts. You've got wine all over the place. Right, so Jesus is just picking up on everyone knew. Everyone knew that you put new wine that was still fermenting uh, into new wineskins. Unless you wanted wine all over the place. Right, so the common theme in these, uh, in these three different pictures is that what Jesus offers us in the coming of his kingdom is radically new. Radically new. It's not that the old was bad. Well, you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said he didn't come to destroy the Old, the law, the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. So it's not the Old is bad, uh, but it is that uh, with Jesus coming, God is doing something radically new and, and it just can't simply be sewn into or patched into or poured into uh, the old structures and practices of Judaism. It is not compatible. Uh, so what is this new thing that Jesus offers? Well, it's all the blessings of God's kingdom, right? Lots and lots of things. Uh, But the focus here is on the wonder of being forgiven of our sins and being accepted by God. Right? That's the focus of the immediate context, right? The story of the paralyzed man who was forgiven of his sins. The story of Matthew and his friends 
forgiven of their sins. It's also the focus of some really important passages uh, in the Old Testament that speak about this new thing that God is going to do. Uh, For example, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, uh, God promises there, uh, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Right, so, so what's new about this covenant, uh, this, this new relationship that God's going to have with his people? What's new about it? Well, a couple of verses later, in verse 34, God says, uh, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will know me from the uh, least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is right at the heart of this new thing that God is going to do. But Because one of the the big questions left kind of unanswered in the Old Testament uh, is how can God maintain his justice? How can God do what is right and yet still forgive sinners? How can those two things happen? How can a just God simply forgive people's wickedness? Matthew did some bad stuff. How can God just turn a blind eye? How can he just forgive that? How can you remember their sins no more? Right, Jesus gives us a hint in verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. Right, yeah, you see that? Jesus says, uh, now it's wedding time, feasting time. Uh, that's why my disciples don't fast, Jesus says, or they're not fasting. Uh, but one day it will be time for a funeral. It will be time for fasting when the bridegroom is taken from his bride. That one day the bridegroom, Jesus, will be taken from his bride. The only way this forgiveness is possible for for people like Matthew and his friends, for people like us, is if Jesus is taken from them. Taken to die on the cross, to bear God's justice, to pay the full cost of forgiveness. Jesus says his relationship with his people is like a marriage. When we sin against him, uh, we sin against our bridegroom, against our husband, our wife. Uh, so, for, uh, so imagine for a moment uh, something horrible. Uh, this is not on the cards, right? Uh, but imagine uh, that I sin against Gabby. I betray her. I'm unfaithful to her. I cheat on her. Horrible. If that happens, Gabby has a choice, of course. She can judge me or forgive me. If she does forgive me, it'll cost her. She'll have to swallow all her righteous anger, her judgment, her bitterness. Uh, She will have to pay the cost of forgiveness. She'll have to pay that cost. Let's not kid ourselves. Forgiveness isn't cheap. Someone always pays the cost if there's going to be forgiveness. And in this this passage, Jesus is saying uh, that one day he will pay the cost. One day he'll be taken from his disciples, he'll be lifted up on the cross to pay the cost of forgiveness. Uh, And he'll do that because of his great love for us. Right? He's our bridegroom. He loves his bride. He wants us to enjoy all the blessings of his kingdom, uh, particularly this wonderful blessing spoken about by the prophet Jeremiah, uh, where God would forgive all our wickedness and remember our sins no more. It's not like God, uh, I say, I forgive your sins, uh, but I've got a little book here and I'm going to dredge them up whenever, you know. No, remember your sins no more. It's a wonderful promise. Jesus wants us to enjoy that promise, uh, but we only get to enjoy that blessing uh, that the 
the, the, that incredible promise, if like Matthew, uh, if like Rembrandt, are you willing to own the fact that you're a sinner? Right? That apart from Christ, you're sinful and impure and sick. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my church used to sing a song, a hymn, uh, called, uh, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Did anyone else sing that song? It's a very classic, Were You There When They... Uh, the, the words uh, go like this. Uh, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You saw the picture. right? Rembrandt knew he was there, spiritually speaking, when they crucified his Lord. He was convinced of that. Christ was crucified for him. Matthew knew he was there. I know I was there. I'm a sinner and Christ had to die for me, for us, so that when we follow him in faith, we can experience this glorious wonder of forgiveness and Christ's acceptance and embrace. As that song says, it should cause us to tremble, tremble, tremble. It's a great wonder. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for sustaining uh, me and us. Uh, Please, Father, uh, may these words uh, take root in our hearts and bear fruit that brings honour and praise to you. Uh, Please convict us of our sin, uh, not uh, so that we can feel guilty and ashamed and beat ourselves up, uh, but so we can run to our Lord Jesus and embrace his grace and mercy and healing in our life. Uh, May we this day uh, know these truths all the more deeply and please spare us uh, from the illusion of thinking that somehow we're saints and good people uh, who don't need our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.